Uh, well, good morning. My name's Alistair, and I'll be bringing the sermon to us this morning. Um, I tend to speak quite quickly when I get nervous, um, and so I'm sorry about that. Um, if I do start speaking quickly, like give me a little nod or something. Good news is, if it goes quickly, it's all over quickly too. So, sorry about that. Um, this morning, we'll be talking about um, sexuality in the sermon. Um, I thought it's worth acknowledging um, that for uh, that we're talking about it in a way that brings up feelings of guilt and shame. And I want to preface the discussion by acknowledging that some of you uh, have been hurt sexually and had experiences with, with sexuality that mean that you carry around with you deep wounds and feelings of shame. And I want to put, put it to you that maybe this, uh, what I have to say here, might not be the nuanced discussion you need to hear. Uh, it might not be for you, and that's fine, and you absolutely have my permission just to write your shopping list in your head when that section comes up, or play Wordle on your phone, whatever you need to do during that part of the talk. Let's pray as we begin. Our Father, we pray that your word would be a light in our hearts this morning, and that we would grow to know you better. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if that... Um, the other button, I pressed the wrong button. There we go. Okay, cool. Uh, what do you think of this uh, as a job description? Uh, cleaning duties, including cleaning up vomit. Uh, provide educational support to unwilling students. Appreciate and treasure low-quality art. Uh, negotiate deals with totally irrational conversation partners. Uh, willingness to hold and treasure any arbitrary thing that's given to you. Long hours, be on call in the middle of the night uh, for whatever kind of support is needed, no pay. In fact, we need you to contribute your income uh, and must be willing to commit to a minimum of 18 years. Uh, two questions about that job. Do you want that job? Uh, and second question, what is that job? Parent, and it's a description of a young parent because that's the only experience that I have so far. Uh, and there's more to it, isn't there? There's way more because you also have to be so proud of them when you catch them being kind to each other. You have to every now and again look over at your kids and just, just sigh and be overwhelmed with joy. You have to worry that they're growing up too fast and that you aren't making the most of it. And it doesn't really make sense as a job description. None of those things really make sense as rules. You do those things on a good day because you love your kids. You don't do them because they are the rules of what it is to be a parent. You do them because that's what that kind of close, intimate relationship means. Uh, it's a different kind of relationship than the relationship you might have uh, to the tax office. Uh, when you fill out your tax return, your heart isn't filled with generosity, is it? Uh, what you want to pay is, to the letter, exactly the amount that you owe, not a cent more. And the exact wording matters. The technicalities matter. Uh, you're expected to be stingy. Uh, it's a kind of adversarial system where you fight the ATO over every cent. But following Jesus and living out uh, your life in the kingdom, it isn't a tax return. Uh, Jesus wants a change of heart. 
Uh, Jesus wants a change of heart. The question can't be, what can I get away with? What's the minimum that I can do? No, Jesus wants his hearers to be captured by a fundamentally different approach, a change of heart, a change of relationship to God. And it's my suspicion that God has put this text before us today because there are still parts of our hearts where we're asking, what can I get away with? And God wants to reign in those parts of our hearts too. And that might sound a little bit abstract, but Jesus immediately gets into the grit and grime and brokenness of human life. And so today we're looking at this change as it takes place in anger and sexuality. Uh, Maybe it can feel uh, in the Christian life that everything's a bit vibey, that the Christian life is all about ideas uh, and what you think about those ideas. But the right response to the Sermon on the Mount is to do the things Jesus says. And I say that for a couple of reasons. First of all, because Jesus says so at the start and end of the sermon, and also because he assumes the whole way through that his hearer is struggling at doing what he says, struggling and failing and asking for forgiveness. And also, I think the most telling clue about what Jesus wants you to do with his words is that Jesus doesn't only tell you what to do. If you read closely, he tells you how to do it. He says, you've got a problem with lust, cut it out. You want to fix your heart, do good things while no one is watching. The whole way through, he's not only showing you just what, but how. How to have this change of heart. (laughs) Very dramatic. He envisions the hearer living out a relationship of closeness, of a child standing with their father as they do his works, a relationship that runs on forgiveness. Uh, Jesus starts off our section with what will be his catchphrase going through. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, but I tell you. Uh, But by which he means you heard it said in the first five books of the Bible, in the law. You You heard the law on one hand, but I say on the other. And the more you hear of Jesus's sermon, the more you realize that he isn't starting a fight with Moses or with the law. He wants to take issue not with what was said, but with what was heard. You could almost say, you misheard that it was said, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Not because the law doesn't say that, But because if that's all you hear when the law says do not murder, if all you hear is don't unlawfully kill, then you haven't heard the law right. God isn't aiming at a nation of non-murderers when he gives Moses the law. They are meant to be a light to the world, a people of God's very own, who would love him with their heart, soul, mind and strength. The Torah says that every person was made in God's image. Their law said that every life was valuable. The slave's life is worth that of a master. The, the, poor is worth, uh, the, poor, the life of a poor person is worth that of a rich person. When the law says, do not murder, it never meant that you would stop there. If you look at another person that God has made, 
And you think that the law has set the bar for the way you treat them at do not murder, you haven't heard right. No, Jesus says, what you cultivate in your heart toward your neighbour matters. What you say about your brother matters. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. It's worth noticing here and throughout his ministry that Jesus spoke in a provocative way. Uh, It's probably fair to say when he implies the same consequence to anger as he does to murder that he's using something like hyperbole or exaggeration, especially if you consider that Jesus himself gets angry and he even uses a word that he prohibits here later on in the Gospel of Matthew. But I think that hyperbole doesn't quite capture it. I think, Jesus is say, I think what Jesus is saying is something more like a wisdom saying. Uh, it's not, uh, and the trick of a wisdom saying is that it's not like a fact where so long as you get the words on the page into your head and recount them exactly on the test you've done right, No, the truth of a wisdom saying happens not just on the page, but in your mind and in your heart. It's like if I say one plus one, I put in your head not just one plus one, but two. (laughs) Um, And considering murder as serious as anger, considering anger as serious as murder is meant to show you something in your heart and in your mind about what's really going on when you're angry with your brother. If the tragedy of murder is the loss of a person made in God's image and precious to him, what is it to cultivate anger in your heart toward your neighbour? What is it to harbour the kind of anger that is expressed in insults against people? You might have heard me say a few seconds ago uh, that Jesus himself got angry. And there are times when it's right to be angry. For sure there are. Uh, Sometimes a heart that isn't moved to anger at injustice is a heart that's grown too cold. Um, There's a saying uh, in in America that the only way to stop a bad man with a gun is to have a good man with a gun. And I have no comment about whether or not that makes sense when it comes to guns, but uh, but I think sometimes we can take that approach to anger. And the question I want to raise, and that I think is underneath Jesus' critique of anger here, is how confident are you that you are the good guy with the anger? I think often the story our anger wants to tell us is that it's righteous, but I reckon doubt that. Jesus, in verse 25 and 26, imagines that you are so, uh, you think you're so right about your anger toward your brother that you're willing to argue the case in court. And his advice is, don't. Settle it instead, because Jesus assumes you're wrong, that a judge might actually find you to be wrong. He says, the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Because Jesus, in this whole sermon, wants you to notice your heart. Being angry feels like being right, but doubt that. And notice, too, what your heart does to your neighbour. Let me take a leaf out of Jesus' book and say this in a provocative way. Um, I bet there are people that you are killing in your heart. 
Maybe it's somebody out there in the world. Maybe it's the woke or the racists or the left or the right. Or maybe it's somebody who's in this room with you now. Maybe they wronged you. Uh, and maybe you're the one that's in the right. But your anger eats away at you. Uh, and maybe you'll, you'd never hurt them directly. Uh, and maybe you wouldn't even say anything to them about your anger. But you are cultivating a heart towards them that makes them less than a person made in the image of God. What's that anger doing for you? On balance, is it good or bad? Probably it feels good, and you're probably not doing anything that anybody would know about. But Jesus says, even to insult your brother or sister is to bring hell into the present here with you. But if the kingdom is to come here, then what you owe your neighbour is love. So ask yourself, does that anger inside you matter? Or did you hear that it was said that because it's not murder, that it's okay? Don't kid yourself. Jesus says, turn your anger, or turn from your anger toward your brother and turn toward your brother and be reconciled. A preacher that I once heard speak uh, pointed out that Jesus has in mind here, what Jesus has in mind here is to go deep into the command, do not murder, and ask not what's the minimum I can do to obey that command, but to ask what's the opposite of murder? The opposite of murder has to be something like to cherish and to love each person God puts in your way. The salve for destroying an imagined version of a person in your heart is to turn to that actual person, to turn from fuming about all the dumb and thoughtless things the other person has done, from imagining all your comebacks and all your takedowns in your head, and turn towards that person. Jesus imagines you could be so changed that you wouldn't even come to worship if you had an issue with your brother. He imagines this kind of absurd scenario where, you know, you, you travel three, uh, the three days it takes to get from Galilee where they are to Jerusalem where the temple is, and you get there and you're just about to put your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you and you stop yourself right there leave your gift at the altar and walk three days home and reconcile. Because the righteousness he imagines, the righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees, it compels you to do so much more than not murder your neighbour, to love your neighbour, not as much as the tax office requires, but as much as you love yourself. And so that's anger. And then Jesus turns to sexuality. He says, you have heard it said that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Uh, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Um, Christianity has a reputation for being prudish, uh, for being kind of repressed sexually. And I don't reckon that's a fair thing to say about Christianity. But even if it is... Our society has the opposite problem. And the Bible says that sexuality is like fire. It's a, it's a flame. It's great. It's useful. It's beautiful. But muck around with it, and you're going to start something that you won't be able to put out. Um, 
uh, Aussie men used to drive cars that looked like this. Uh, but uh, Ford and Holden both stopped making them, and every man uh, all at once together said, what I want uh, is a dual-cab ute, an off-road capable dual-cab ute. Uh, and I think that sexuality is a little bit like off-roading. Uh, there's nothing wrong with off-roading, uh, nothing wrong with going camping with your family. It's a great and beautiful, transcendent experience. Uh, and when you do go off-road, you need solid axles, you need huge mud tyres on your car, uh, and you need to be able to go full, uh, you need a car that's got full drive and low range. And you probably even need an awning on the side of your, of your dual cab ute. But what percentage of your time, realistically, are you going off-road? Uh, how handy is it to have this massive rig of a four-wheel drive at the supermarket? There is a right time and place for off-roading, but most of the time, having a four-wheel drive is a little bit inconvenient. Uh, the ride is rougher, the car weighs two and a half tonnes, it uses more fuel, and you can't even really use the bed of your, of your dual-cab ute because you put a rooftop tent on there. Which is all to say, that even if you're big into off-roading, most of the time, you're not going off-roading. And the Bible says sexuality is good, it's great, but most people, most of the time, aren't having sex. And so for most of your relationships with most people, it's kind of inconvenient, kind of gets in the way. And Jesus is interested in what you're doing in that bit of your life, which is most of the time. And in that time is your question, what can I get away with? You know what, you might draw the line at adultery, but Jesus wants us to notice that adultery, it doesn't often happen all at once. The story of an affair isn't often a short story. Jesus wants us to ask, what happens in your heart in the moments before, in the days before, in the weeks before, what happens in your heart most of the time? What kind of an attitude are you cultivating towards women? Is it good? Would, you, would your mum or your daughter approve? Could you make eye contact with Jesus while you're explaining it to him? Jesus says that to look at a woman lustfully in your heart is the same kind of thing as committing adultery would be. And it's worth asking the question, why is that? What harm does it really do? Uh, whether a person that you see is very attractive or not, what you owe them as a human made in the image of God is your compassion. You need to look at them and not just see a body or an imagined version of that person in your mind, but to see that person. And just like anger, Lust robs you of seeing a person as a person. And even if you may never know that person who is the object of your lust, your heart is made for love. Your heart is not made to consume other people for your pleasure. Your drive for sexual satisfaction was meant to drive you toward intimacy and self-giving love, not the servicing of your own pleasure. And Jesus frames it as a man looking lustfully, a man not just noticing but desiring a woman. But I think it's a saying that makes sense even if you need to swap the genders around until it fits your sexuality too. 
Because some of you here today are people with same-sex attraction, and some of you are women. And I think it's worth asking the question, what in my heart is a step towards adultery? What in my heart causes me to lose sight of the image of God in the people that I'm attracted to? What in my heart causes me to give the people I'm attracted to something less than the love that I owe them? Um, I asked a few people uh, for advice on talking about female lust in this talk, uh, and the resounding answer I got was, don't. Um, You're going to stuff it up, and you could do more harm than good. Uh, And I'm going to do it anyway, uh, not just because I'm an arrogant man, but because I think that you say too much by saying nothing. Uh, It risks making female lust unspeakable from the front of church. And my hope is that, however poorly I do, that in our church, women take this as permission to have a better conversation about lust. Uh, Most men have talked to another man about lust. Most women haven't. Uh, And that does nobody any good. Uh, So here, I have a quote uh, from a a woman named uh, Marion Jacobs writing on lust. She says, Being a woman who struggles with lust can feel like being alone in a crowded room. You think you're the only one tempted when you watch that movie and when you read that book, yet the opposite is true. We've been told that lust is when a man looks at a woman, not his wife, and desires her, and that definition is both misleading and incomplete. If women don't begin to redefine what lust means for them, they'll continue to isolate themselves from each other, their spouses, and in so doing, cripple their chances of overcoming temptation. And she later goes on to describe how for women, sexual attraction is often driven by emotional connection. Uh, Despite the variety of specific addictions women face, there is a common root. Women want to be desirable and desired. This adds an emotional and relational layer to female sexual addiction. The stories we conjure up in our minds usually require two people. It means that our lust can more easily hide behind the guise of friendship and of story. Uh, And so that's one more story, and maybe it doesn't get it quite right, but I hope we can open up the space for you to have the conversation you need to have to be fully known here in our church and loved. So what does Jesus say that we should do? He says, gouge out your eye, cut off your hand. Uh, It's better to lose part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your eye is causing you to sin, get rid of it. Uh, But before you rummage around in your handbag for your pocket knife, uh, let's pause and see if we can save you your eyes. Jesus wants us to see the real stakes of what we're doing and to to take decisive, costly, targeted action. Uh, So you need to, first of all, if you haven't yet decided... Decide to let go of whatever sexual sin you've been holding on to. If you're married and in your imagination you've been keeping your options open, entertaining what-ifs about the women you see, decide not to. Save your eye and get rid of that pleasure that you've been keeping for yourself. Uh, If it's pornography or looking at women on Instagram or social media or whatever it is, delete the app. Get software for your computer, for your phone. To save your eye, maybe what you need to do, and it would be lame and inconvenient, is get a dumb phone 
Get rid of your smartphone and buy some kind of uh, flip phone. Risk the inconvenience. Or maybe you need to risk your social standing. Be that lame guy. Be Ned Flanders uh, who has to look away or stop watching uh, when the sex scene comes on in your otherwise highbrow TV show. If what it takes uh, is to go to the gym at a different time, do it. Step back from that flirty rapport that you have with your barista. You might not need to gouge out your eye just yet, but act now when it's just a small thing, because you know what the stakes really are. I think in the long term, decisive action means a turn towards connection with other people. Uh, sexual need is often an expression of emotional need, and, and as you restore the humanity of the people you had uh, who had become something less than human in your mind, turn your heart towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. Have a difficult and risky conversation with a trusted friend about your struggles. Be that friend who listens well and responds with grace and love. Get filled up in the intimacy that you are made to need in safe, God-honouring relationships. And it's very possible to come away from a sermon like this with a whole bunch of guilt. Uh, and maybe you've been trying at your sexual sin. Maybe you've been trying at your anger. And all you've gotten is more awareness of your brokenness and of the distance between where your heart is and where you want it to be. And if that's you, the kingdom of heaven is exactly where you need to be. We live this life in the embrace of our Father, and as you live this sermon out, the kingdom of, and the kingdom of heaven grows in your heart, it's going to feel like you need to be forgiven much. And what do you do with your guilt? Well, Jesus says, he who has been forgiven much loves much. The two columns grow side by side. So let your anger be transformed into reconciliation and let your lust be transformed into giving love a self-giving love for your brothers and sisters. Let's pray together now. Our Father, your kingdom come in our hearts. Forgive us our anger and our lust. Do not let us forget your words this week, but by your grace, make big changes in our lives and in our hearts, that we would be salt and light in this world, and that your name would be made great. Amen.